Welcome to the Center Ranch Church Weekly Podcast. We believe that faith comes by hearing the Word of God. Thanks so much for checking out the podcast. Here's this week's message. It's good to see you this morning. You can be seated. Thank you for being here today. I'm excited you're here. Today's going to be a great day. And if you were here last week, we had Steve Finn with us. He's the founder and the executive director of Chestnut Mountain Ranch. So last week was special having him here and getting to have him share his heart with us. That ministry is really amazing. What God is doing, the, the, the land they have is beautiful. The buildings they have are beautiful. But even more beautiful is what's happening in the lives of those boys and the families that are being restored. God is just doing something amazing there. And so I'm really thankful that we get to be a small part of what's happening through getting to serve up there and through supporting them financially. When you give at Center Branch, that's one of the ministries we support on a regular basis. And it's exciting just to hear testimonies and and see what God is is doing there. So that was last week, but we've been in a series working our way through the book of Acts. And one of the things that we want to do as we go through the book of Acts is take time to sort of reevaluate where we are as a church family and make sure that we are in line with the foundation that was set in the early church. Early on in this series, we looked at a passage from Galatians that talks about how foolish the Galatians were because after beginning in the spirit, they tried to go on to perfection by relying on the flesh. And we sort of applied that to church in general, that we can see the way that God started things in the book of Acts by the power of the Holy Spirit, by the moving of the Holy Spirit. And so we want him to continue to work that way in us and through us. And so a foundation has been laid and it gets dangerous when you start building out beyond where the foundation is. So we want to look for keys that the early church was so effective. God was doing such amazing things. What are some of those keys that we can apply and make sure are in place in our church family? A couple of weeks ago, Pastor Christina did a great job talking about the importance of having boldness that comes from the Holy Spirit, a boldness that comes as a result of our relationship with the Lord and how important it is for you and I to be bold men and women of God. We see it in those those people that were ministering in the early church, that we need to be those kinds of people that don't shrink back, that aren't intimidated by the world. When we come to obstacles, we don't just deter our course and decide to do something different because we've got a boldness that rises up on the inside of us that we know who we are as sons and daughters of God. We, we need to have that, that boldness, that inner strength, and we need to develop it in our relationship with the Lord. Then the week after that, Pastor Jonathan did an amazing job talking about having a fear of God, a healthy reverence for God. That So many people have this kind of fairy tale idea of God, that he's just a concept, he's just kind of out there somewhere, uh, more of just an, an idea or an ideology. God is real, and we need to respect him and honor him and understand he's no one to, to play with. He's not a joke or just an idea that just kind of morphs into our own concepts. God is real, and there needs to be a holy honor and reverence that we have for him. He, we looked at Acts chapter 4 and Acts chapter 5, and he talked about Ananias and Sapphira, who, who ended of just dropping dead, the judgment. I mean, just that this thing is real and there needs to be that fear that we have of walking in holiness and a reverence for God. He talked about the way we handle our possessions and, and whether we are really owners or, or stewards. Just a great, great message. You know, that story of Ananias and Sapphira is really kind of a crazy story. An amazing story. If you're not familiar with it, Ananias and Sapphira, a husband, wife in the early church, Acts chapter 5, they, they sell their possessions, sell uh, some property, and bring the money into the church. It's what a lot of the people were doing at that point in the early church, selling things and, and bringing it to fund the advancement of the gospel. So they, they bring it and they, they give it at church, and they say that it's the entire amount that they sold the property for, when in reality, they had held some of that money back. And they're questioned on it. And like I mentioned before, they're they're judged. They they drop dead on the spot and are drugged out by by young men that come in. I guess that was their, (laughs) they had part of their 
ministry teams was to drag away the dead people. But the issue, the issue wasn't that they didn't give all of the money, right? That God isn't requiring you have to sell all of your property, bring the money to the, the church. Even in that passage, if you read it, they, they say, hey, but it was yours to do with what you wanted. You could have sold it, not sold it, kept the money, give the money. The issue was that they lied about it, that there, was, that there was dishonesty. So one of the keys we can see that we need to make sure is in place in our church is to have a high regard for holiness, that sin is nothing to mess around with, and so we need to, to raise the standard of holiness in, in our church family. This is something that's kind of been a repeated uh, theme that keeps coming up, just an emphasis. We need to be people that really strive to walk in holiness and righteousness, and holiness is something that in the modern church is kind of an distasteful idea or out-of-date idea, and you kind of have people that gravitate to one or two ends of a spectrum where there's the idea of holiness at one end and grace at the other end of the spectrum. And you can even hear people ask questions like, are you like a holiness church? Are you a holiness kind of person? Or are you more like a grace church, a, a, a grace kind of believer? That, that whole way of viewing things is, is off. It's a misconception. You, you've been deceived if you view it as like opposing things. It's holiness versus grace and grace versus holiness. It's supposed to be both and. They, they aren't competing with one another. One actually provides the other. That you can't really have one genuinely without also having the other. So if there's any kind of thought, is this holiness, is this grace, it, they, they flow together. Let me read to you from 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9. Paul says this, and he said to me, Paul talking about what Jesus said to him, says, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Paul is talking about what Jesus said to him, and he said, my grace is sufficient. Now, my grace is adequate. There's nothing lacking. Once you have my grace, you have everything that you need. It's completely sufficient. And then he says, in your weaknesses, my strength is brought to perfection. It becomes manifest. It's, it's put on display. And so we can take what he, Jesus was saying to Paul and apply it to ourselves in our own weaknesses that the grace of God doesn't come along to nod in approval at our weaknesses in our sin. It actually, because of the grace of God, we can have the strength of God manifesting. So where I used to be weak and that used to be a problem area for me and I used to always mess up and make the same stupid mistakes, now I don't have that weakness anymore, but because of the grace of God, I can now become strong in that area instead of a repeated failure in that area. So the grace of God allows us, frees us to walk strong and holy and upright instead of giving approval to the fact that we keep messing up over and over again. My grace is sufficient for where I used to be strong. Now, now where I used to be weak, now the, the strength of God is brought to perfection. There's this idea of the grace of God that I used to have that it was like taking a shower. It's you, you, the grace of God, you're clean, and then you go out and you live your life and you mess up because we all sin, we all have weaknesses, and you make your mistakes and you make a mess of your life, and then you can come back to God and get some more grace and get cleaned up, and then you're set to go out and kind of run that cycle over and over and over again. And that's how some people live their lives in this idea of holiness and, and grace being opposed to one another. But when you really understand the grace of God, it provides the strength to not repeat that pattern and pattern and to become more and more Christ. Like. There's an idea that if we're going to promote holiness, then life gets so difficult. If we're going to raise the bar of holiness, raise the standard in our lives, it's going to make life hard. But really, sin is what makes life hard for people. That, that's what makes life difficult and hard, hard to manage your relationships, hard to manage your life. Holiness, it's the grace. It's his strength being manifest in us. It's when we get our eyes on ourselves that makes it complicated and difficult. The grace of God is sufficient. Where I used to be weak, now I can be strong. And so lowering a standard of holiness has hurt the church as a whole. It's, it's kept us from being what God wants us to be and has called us to be. Think of the children of Israel. When God took the children of Israel out of Egypt, through the wilderness, into the promised land, been talking about this land for a long time. I'm going to take you in this land. Do you remember what God liked to call the promised land? The little nickname that he had for the promised land? 
God likes to call it a land flowing with milk and honey. I'm going to bring you into a land that's flowing. It's gushing with milk and honey. Now, when he used that, that term, he wasn't talking about a land that's sticky and smells like dairy all the time. He was talking to agricultural people. And so when they heard a land flowing with milk and honey, it was abundance. It was fruitfulness. It's that your herds are, are multiplying and your cattle and sheep and all of that was multiplying and your crops are just growing and growing. It was a land of abundance and provision and prosperity where the goodness of God would be on display. That's what God wanted for his people, that they dwell in this land and God's provision in their life would set them apart. They would be distinct from the people around them. They would be envied. They would be admired. People would say, man, their God's a good God. What a good, I, I want to be a part of that group. I want to serve that God. Look at how he cares for his people. But as you read through the Old Testament, there are also times where this land flowing of milk and honey didn't function like a land flowing with milk and honey. There was drought. There was famine. Their, their crops failed. It seems like they couldn't, they, they couldn't, they just kept getting further and further behind as hard as they strived and they would, they would work and there's pestilence that, that would come in. And you read those accounts. Now, what was going on with the children of Israel that turned this land flowing with milk and honey into a land of famine and drought and failed crops and pestilence? They, they made allowance for sin. They, they made allowance for sin and when they did it, it, it changed them from being what God wanted them to be into some, something entirely different. Now, when we look at the church, the church is supposed to be a place of blessing. The church is supposed to be a, a place of advantage in our lives. We're supposed to be set apart and distinct, very similar to the children of Israel, where people can see the goodness of God on display in our lives. Man, he leads us and guides us and cares for us and, and provides for us, that it should be a fruitful hill, that we are distinct and blessed from the people around us. But oftentimes, that's not the case. When we look at the book of Acts and the early church. Originally, it's essentially one church, and God used that one church to shake the entire world. But you can look at towns and communities that have churches on every corner that aren't even able to shake a neighborhood. There's, there's, there's a, a, something going on where we're not lining up with the way that God wanted the church to be. Instead of someone distinct and fruitful and abundant, that the envy of the people around them, it's, it's a joke. People buying up empty churches to turn them into nightclubs and whatever else. Could it be that we're not what God wants us to be and it's the same cause that was functioning in the children of Israel to take that land flowing with milk and honey and cause it to be a place of drought and dryness and famine? That we've got to raise the standard of holiness in our lives and that is what allows the blessing of God to flow. So, Holiness doesn't keep us from what's good. Holiness makes life hard. No, holiness prepares a way for us to enjoy the blessing of God in our lives. And it's not just the huge, obvious sins. The Bible says it's the little foxes that spoil the vine in Song of Solomon. What's it talking about? It's talking about things that you think, well, that's no big deal. Hey, we'll just let that one slide. I mean, what, what possible harm could that little white lie, that little sin, that little thing? I mean, everybody does that anyway. What, what could that possibly do? It's, it's those little foxes that have the ability to, to wreck the whole thing, to ruin the, the, whole, the whole vineyard. So when we look at Ananias and Sapphira, their, their sin, their compromise wasn't that they were doing some egregious, horrible, what we would consider in the natural, some disgusting, foul sin. They're not cooking meth and selling it to children on the streets. They're not raping people. They're not murdering people. What did they do? They, they were dishonest. They fudged the numbers a little bit. They were, they were a little bit proud of their gift. They were, they were trying to angle for more influence more influence in the church, things that we would think aren't that big of a deal. And one of the lessons we can take away from this is that literally in their case, those kinds of sins that we can overlook and think aren't a big deal, they kill. 
They kill. They are deadly. Sin is deadly, and it's nothing to be messed around with. And maybe we're not dragging people out by their feet and piling them up outside in in an open grave, but it doesn't mean that sin has lost its ability to kill. We're just maybe blinded to it more than what they were experiencing in the early church. The wages of sin is death. It's, It's a fact. Sin kills. And again, maybe people's hearts aren't stopping instantly, but there's death that comes into your potential, death that comes into the church, death that's working in your marriage. In your, in your household, in, in your career. Sin produces death. And so we've got to raise a standard of holiness in our church. Hosea chapter 10, verse 12 says this, sow for yourselves righteousness, reap in mercy, break up your fallow ground, for it is time to seek the Lord till he comes and rains righteousness on you. It's time to seek the Lord. I really believe this is This is a special time for the body of Christ. It's a special time for us as a church. It's a time where God wants to flourish his church. He he wants us to be that land flowing with milk and honey, that fruitful hill, something that brings him glory and honor, that we're walking in strength and boldness and the power of God, the goodness of God on display in us and through us. That's the time that we live in, but there's a responsibility on us, it says, to seek the Lord and to break up fallow ground. What does that mean? Areas that aren't producing, areas that aren't fruitful. Fallow ground is where where the soil gets packed down and it's hard and it's resistant. You can sow there and it's not going to grow. You've got to break that up. So what are the areas in your life and in my life that would be described as fallow ground? Maybe it's attitudes, behaviors that are just set they're established in our lives. We've got to, to give it some thought and say, I need, man, I need to break this up. I need, I need to plow this area of my heart, of my mind, of my routine, of the way that I handle what God has entrusted me with, of my finances, of my talents, of my ability. Man, I need to break it up. I'm so set in my ways. I need to take a step back and I need to seek God with every area so he can reign righteousness in my life. We live in a privileged time. To be the body of Christ that's alive at this hour, it's a, it's a privilege. It's an honor. It's a blessed time that God wants to do something special in our lives, in us and through us. God wants to do something special in your life. He wants to do something special, not not just somewhere out there, in, in our church, in our lives, in our community, to use us. But we could miss it. We could miss it if we don't respond, if we don't break up fallow ground. But we won't miss it. Amen. We're, we're not going to miss it. We won't, we won't miss it in Jesus' name. Amen. Praise the Lord. Let's let's pray, and we'll jump into Acts chapter 6. Father, there's no one like you. Lord, give us grace to love you with all of our hearts. Lord, not to keep areas of our life set back off limits, completely yielded to you. Lord, that we would seek you. Now is the time to seek you, to seek you with all of our hearts and find you. Lord, I ask that you'd speak to us this morning. Give us eyes to see. Give us ears to hear. Father, bless us with hearts that are like good soil that respond to your word, that your word would take root and bring forth fruit in our lives. We praise you and we thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Go ahead and turn your Bibles to Acts chapter six. We'll read the first couple verses of Acts chapter six. Acts chapter 6, starting in verse 1, it says, But as the believers rapidly multiplied, there were rumblings of discontent. The Greek-speaking believers complained about the Hebrew-speaking believers, saying their widows were being discriminated against in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve called a meeting of all the believers. They said, we apostles should spend our time teaching the word of God, not running a food program. And so, brothers, select seven men who are well-respected and full of the spirit and wisdom. We will give them this responsibility. Then we apostles can spend our time in prayer and teaching the word. So we've been reading through the book of Acts. We keep seeing where God is adding to the church, adding daily to their number, those who are being saved, that the church is expanding, the church is growing, things are going incredible. And then we hit Acts chapter six, the verses we just read, and we see they've grown to a point where now they're starting, they're starting to have some issues because of the growth, that there's people complaining, there's rumblings of discontent, it said. 
In the King James Version, it says that there arose a murmuring. People are murmuring. They're complaining. People are, are getting upset, accusing other people of favoritism. There's, there's issues. When there is growth, you will grow to a point where eventually you will run into issues because of that growth. As the church grows, there are new obstacles and difficulties that happen as a result of that growth. Things that used to be easy become difficult. Things that used to be simple become complicated and complex. Things that used to be convenient can become inconvenient because, because of the growth. And there are some people that because of the difficulties and the challenges that come with growth, think that growth is not something to be pursued. There's a lot of churches that are content just to be small. You know what? There's so many difficulties and obstacles and challenges and inconveniences with growth. I'm just, I just kind of prefer it to be my little group and we get together and have our own little church. Or some people think it's, it's wrong altogether to have a large church or for a church to be desirous to grow. Some people think it's, not, it's wrong. Some people think it's just not worth the headaches that it causes. But it's important for us to notice how they handled it in the early church. When they grew to a point where they started having these problems, their response wasn't to say, you know what, things were growing really well. Man, this is a pain now. This is hard now. This is difficult. Let's just cap the growth. Let's just kind of pump the brakes here a little bit. Let's slow things. That, that's not what they did. They didn't decide that growth was a bad thing. They, they restructured. They made changes to facilitate even more growth. They were so desirous. They knew that the body of Christ is supposed to grow to the point where they stood back and said, okay, we got to make some structural changes. We got to move things around so that we can continue to grow. God wants the church to grow. God wants this church to grow. Jesus said, I will build my church church. He didn't say, I'm going to manage it. I'm going to maintain it. He was interested in its growth. And there are challenges and difficulties and inconveniences related to that. There are a lot of reasons not to grow. There's a lot of difficulties we can avoid if we don't pursue growth, but it's not our church. It's the body of Christ. And Jesus wants the church to grow. So it's wise to get in alignment with the one who initiated and founded and is in charge of the church. If we're going to be in the church, we might as well be in line with the one who's the head of the church, and he desires growth. So a question we should ask ourselves is, Lord, how can I get with your program? What can I do that when we hit challenges and difficulties, how can I be part of the solution so we can facilitate more growth? Verse two again. So the 12 called a meeting of all the believers. They said, we apostles should spend our time teaching the word of God, not running a food program. And so brothers, select seven men who are well-respected and are full of the spirit and wisdom. We will give them this responsibility. Then the apostles, we apostles can spend our time in prayer and teaching the word. So what was it that would facilitate more growth. So we're looking at this model of the early church. What, what was necessary? What was the solution to the problem? The solution was to get more people involved, more people serving, more people serving at a greater capacity was the solution, was the solution to the problem. Now I'm going to say something that'll probably stretch your mind a little bit. You, you may or may not be able to relate at all, but there are some people that when they've been in a church service or been a part of a church, they've found things that they didn't like. That there was things that, I know, I know, I, know, I, I knew you wouldn't believe me. There are things that they, they didn't think were up to their standard, not the way that, that they wanted. Didn't like the music, didn't like the, the sermon, didn't like the kids' ministry, didn't like the decor didn't like the length of service, all kinds of stuff. I'm serious. It, it. Now, th this will really blow your mind. Some people allow it to irritate them so much. They get so frustrated, so upset over it, that they begin to complain, that they say things to other people. Crazy, isn't it? They, they, they begin to tell other people, you know, I don't, I don't like... I, I didn't like the way I was greeted this morning. I didn't like the, the volume in there. I didn't like the lighting in there. The kids ministry, the check-in, they just seemed so cumbersome. Did you see the garbage in this newcomer's bag? Get this out. I, you think I want another mug in my cabinet? You gotta be kidding me. They, they complain about stuff. They complain about it. 
The, the modern church is kind of, I, I don't know where it comes from, developed a mindset that when you, when you go to church, you, you can kind of sit back and just critique what you like and what you don't like. That people approach church like a food critic approaches a restaurant. And you feel, you feel superior. You can imagine a food critic, right? Turn their nose up at stuff. It makes them feel important. It makes them feel like they're an expert on it when they start calling out, too cold, too hot, uh, not flavorful enough. People do that with church, and it makes them feel more spiritual, makes them feel superior to pour, point out all the shortcomings, and it's so easy to do. It's so easy to notice where churches are lacking, where they're not good at this. You, you've been to other churches, and so you know how they stack up, and you can go online and watch all kinds of churches from all over the world. You know, this worship ministry is about, you know, a seven on a scale of 10. You can grade everything. It's so easy to do. You know, hey, this is good. That's bad. That's okay. That's just embarrassing. I mean, it's, it's so easy in everything. Everything is available for criticism. There's, there's nothing that's off limits, right? There's nothing off limits. The front of the church, the parking lot, the parking team, the greeters, the, the quality of the coffee that you're given for free. I mean, everything, everything can be critiqued. Can, can you believe these cups? I can feel the heat on my hand. Well, I'm, I'm sorry. Everything, everything is up for grabs when it comes to criticism. But in the early church, when people started grumbling and complaining and there was problems and there was issues and you're falling short here and you're messing up there and I don't like the way you're doing it, what was the solution? The solution was to get people involved and help be a part of fixing the problem. So if you notice, if you listen, those greeters, I don't like the way they greet me. That's not the proper way to greet. Has anyone ever shot, told that guy how to, how to have a conversation, how to shake a hand? If you're such an expert on greeting... Maybe you should be a greeter. Maybe you should bless us by you showing us how it's done. Well, I went to check in my kid. That is not proper guidelines for how to run a nursery. They're not following protocol. Well, if you know so much about working in a nursery, then maybe work in the nursery. And we could go on and on from ministry to ministry. I thought the sound was about three decibels. Then why don't you volunteer and help serve in the audio and visual department? The solution to when we have problems is for people to get involved and expand their capacity to serve in the body of Christ. That's, that's what we're see in the early church, correct? That the solution to the problem was we need more people serving. We need more people serving. And so they designate deacons. They designate deacons. The word deacon that's used in this passage comes from a Greek word. It means to serve. It means to serve. So they began a ministry of servants. What we need is servants, people with servants' hearts, people that are willing to get involved and say, how can I meet a need? What can I do to make things better? What can I, what can I do to help you? What can I do to help us be more effective? It's the, the, the first office appointed in the early church was the office of the deacon, the, the servants' ministry, which is perfect for us because that's, that's who we are. We serve. It's one of our values. That's what we do. We're servants. Jesus washed feet. We will too. That's the culture we want. That we're not a bunch of high and mighty people that are too good to, to get down and wash somebody's foot. We serve. That's just who we are. We're a bunch of servants. And that's, what, that's, that's just what a servant does. Do you know that Jesus was a deacon? That's how he approached life. I, I'm just a deacon. I'm just here. I'm here to serve. Let me read to you from Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10, verse 45, Jesus says this, for even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. It's the same word being used there. We get the word deacon from. Jesus said, I didn't come. I'm not looking for people to serve me. I'm not looking for what, what can you do for me? I'm not looking to point out flaws. Jesus said, I, I'm a deacon. I'm a servant. I'm here. I'm here to serve. I'm here to serve. And so, brothers, select seven men who are well-respected and full of the spirit and wisdom, and we will give them this responsibility. Then we apostles can spend our time in prayer and teaching the word. They begin to change the structure, which we could get into a, a long discussion on changing the structure in the church as the growth of the church requires it. That apparently at one point in time, the apostles were involved in the food ministry. But it got to a point where said, listen, this is, we don't have time to do all this. We, we've got to stay narrow in our focus. And they changed the structure. They say, select seven men. What were the qualifications? Full of the Spirit, 
full of wisdom. Spirit and wisdom. I love that both of these are mentioned in the selection of these people to be involved in the ministry. Because this is another area where people can move to one end of the spectrum or the other. That you've got people that are very spiritual in nature. And on the other end of the spectrum, people that walk in, in wisdom and are more intellectual in their, in their makeup. It says they were select people that have both. They are full of wisdom and full of the spirit. Because you can have problems when you get way out on one end. People that are very spiritual and they just kind of talk very whimsical. They squint a lot when they talk and they talk very, very airy in their breath. And they can't have a conversation without including elements of some crazy dream that they had and how it may or may not apply to you and your situation. They don't have a whole lot of room for logic or for being practical in things, common sense. Right? You've talked to them. And then on the other end, there's, there's problems on the other end too, where, where people just w- want to be intellectuals and everything is just common sense and just, just run things by logic. And those people make no room for, for the Holy Spirit and what the Holy Spirit would want to do. So it's not, it's, they're, they're both good, but this is another area. You don't have to pick one or the other. He said, find people that are full of the Spirit, but they're also full of wisdom. We want people that are able to understand both parts and, and weave those together as they serve the Lord. Verse 5. Everyone liked this idea, and they chose the following. Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit. Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas of Antioch, an early convert of the Jewish faith. These seven were presented to the apostles who prayed for them as they laid their hands on them. So they select these guys. So they said, that sounds like a good idea to us. Let's get more people involved. They find these seven people. They're prayed for and they're launched off into their area of service. Now listen to this, verse seven. So, so God's message continued to spread. The number of believers greatly increased in Jerusalem and many of the Jewish priests were converted too. They get guys to start helping out with a food ministry. And a direct result of that is that the message of God continues to spread. The number of disciples continues to multiply. That word that's translated so, in the New King James Version, it says then. Uh, I copied this right out of a lexicon. It says it marks the sequence of closely related events. That word in the Greek marks the sequence. Here, here's the way things happen. They had a problem. Got more people involved. Got these seven guys helping out with the food program. As a direct related result, the, God's message continued to spread and more people were coming in to the kingdom of God. That, that is amazing to me and something we, we need to be aware of because it's very easy when you're serving in certain capacities that aren't as, aren't as obvious or highlighted as other areas of service, you can think that I'm not really making any impact. It would be very easy for Stephen and Philip and the rest of these guys to think as they're wiping down tables after lunch, putting leftovers away in the fridge, scooping out sloppy Joes, getting complaints about finding a hair in the food and having to institute a hairnet policy, just all the stuff that went along with this. It'd be, it'd be very easy for them to think, man, this doesn't. I want to serve them. This this isn't making any impact. I want to do something that matters. But the Bible says as a direct result of what they were doing in their area of service behind the scenes, cooking stuff up, planning out a menu, figuring out what we're going to do for lunch on Tuesday, as they're doing all of those things, it says, so as a result of that, God's message continued to spread. The number of believers greatly increased in Jerusalem and many Jewish priests were converted too. When When people in the body of Christ get involved and begin to use their gifts in whatever capacity that looks like, it allows the the kingdom of God to expand and God's message to continue to advance. When people begin to use their gifts, when people find an area to serve, it allows the church to take new ground. You know, we've read earlier in the book of Acts how the number is multiplying, the number is growing. This talks about something we haven't seen before. Now it's talking about how many priests are now becoming a part of the church too. They're taking new ground with more people committing themselves to serve in the body of Christ. The church is a body and every member has a role to play. Every member has a gift and something to contribute to the production of the church as a whole. You have gifts. You have a role to play 
that we are a body functioning together. That's what the Bible says. The, the church is the body of Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12. For as the body is one and has many members, but all the members of that one body, being many, are one body, so also is Christ. It's talking about a physical body. Your body has lots of different parts. All kinds of different cells and organs and different things that have different jobs and responsibilities. But it, but it all comes together to make one body. Yes. You're one body with lots and lots and lots of different parts that do different things. It says it's the same way in the body of Christ. We who are many make up one body. Each part's unique. Each part has its own gifting. In your body, your liver and your brain are very different from one another. Your eyeball and your knee are very different. Which one's important? Well, they're both important. They've got different jobs. They, they, do, they do very different things. He says it's the same way, the same way in the body of Christ. If we kept reading 1 Corinthians chapter 12, he starts talking about a scenario where the foot would say to the hand, because I'm not a hand, I'm not part. Or the ear would say to the eye, using this analogy, the ear says to the eye, because I'm not an eye, I'm not a part of the body, which is ridiculous, right? They both have special roles, but it happens in the body of Christ that because my giftings aren't like that person's giftings, I can't sing like Pastor Jonathan. I can't work with children like Mr. Mike. I can't greet like this person. I don't have administration skills like that person. They're used in the church. I'm not like them. Therefore, I don't have a place to serve. I'm, I don't have anything to offer. As terrible as that logic would be in your physical body, he's saying it's the same way in the body of Christ. But the devil will try to get you to compare yourself to other people and eliminate yourself from being a valuable, special, needed part of the body of Christ. You have a gift, and the body of Christ needs you, and you can see just getting seven guys serving food, how it caused the church to lurch forward and take new territory. What if every person in our church was serving at maximum capacity? What could we do? How could God use us to advance the kingdom of God? How could the message of God spread through this community if every person was doing something, even if it's behind the scenes and you don't get a whole lot of thanks and fame and, and pats on the back, you're just serving away. Just, it's, a, it's a body. Yes. You arriving here this morning, let's say that, that was the goal today. You got here. Good job. You did it. What parts of your body were involved? All, all of them. Every part of your body was involved in you arriving here. Not, okay, I can see on my feet where every part the, the cells that flow through your blood that carry the energy to your muscles that allowed you to have the strength to get out of bed, that your, your teeth that chewed the food yesterday and processed it and helped it to, to, to create that energy. I mean, we could go part by part getting into details that you don't even think about. Yeah, I guess I hadn't thought about my teeth playing a part in me getting here, but they did. And it's the same way in the body of Christ, that what the church is able to do as the body it's because there's lots of different parts that you might not even make the connection. Just like in, in this passage, the guy scooping out mashed potatoes actually helped the priest get saved. But just because there's not a direct connection doesn't mean that they aren't connected. One helped facilitate the other. And everybody, everybody in the body of Christ has a gift. First Peter chapter four, verse 10, it says, God has given each of you a gift from his great variety of spiritual. There's a great variety. We don't all have to be alike. We're all different. There's different giftings. In the body of Christ, it's not just people who can do public speaking or can play the piano. There's a great variety of spiritual gifts, all kinds of different things. He's given each one of us a gift. You have a gift from his great variety of spiritual gifts. Then he says this, use them well. Use them what you need to be using that gift. Use them well to what? Use them well to serve one another, to serve in the body of Christ. So one, you have a gift. You just do. You need to discover it, and you need to be using it. Your gift needs to be, to be in obedience to the word of God, it needs to be in operation, serving the body, the body of Christ. The fact that you are gifted is a message that's repeated over and over again in the New Testament. It's almost like God would know people would struggle with accepting the fact that they're gifted and have something to contribute. Almost like God knew the enemy would try to rob people of the fulfillment, 
rob people of the impact God wants to make through them, rob people of the joy of, of contributing to the whole by convincing them you're not gifted. You don't have a part. You don't, you don't play a role. The, the ear saying to the eye, I'm, I'm, not, I'm nothing like an eyeball. What, what am I supposed to do? You, you have a special gifting. That's different. Romans chapter 12, verse 6. In his grace, God has given us different gifts for doing certain things well. So if God has given you the ability to prophesy, speak out with as much faith as God has given you. If your gift is serving others, serve them well. If you are a teacher, teach well. If your gift is to encourage others, be encouraging. If it is giving, give generously. If God has given you leadership ability, take the responsibility seriously. If you have a gift for showing kindness to others, do it gladly. He just starts rattling off these different examples. If this is your gift, then, then do it all the way. If you find that you're gifted in this area, lean into it. Be the, be the very best. If your gift is wiping down tables after lunch, then make those tables shine. Do it with all of your heart. Do it as unto the Lord. Just embrace whatever God has made you to be. You might as well be the best at it instead of being jealous of somebody else's gift. That's a strategy of the enemy that causes a stalemate, a stalemate in, the, in the body. Because I'm looking at you wishing I was you. You're looking at me wishing you were me. And then nobody does anything. Or we do things way under what they could be done if everyone was in their proper place. You have a spot to function in the body of Christ. You can do things in a way that no, no one is gifted like you are gifted. No one can do things like you can do things. You are unique and special in the body of Christ. Every one of us. Every one of us. And the lie of the enemy is that that's not true. So if you're not serving, if you're not serving, we need you. We need you. We need you to go through growth track, find a place to serve. Or maybe you went through growth track and you dropped off a schedule. You never took next steps. You didn't, you didn't start using your gifts. You got discouraged or busy or whatever. We need you. If you are serving, you need to know that you're making impact. You need to, to know, man, what I'm putting my hand to, it's fruitful in the kingdom of God. I'm making impact. No, you're not. You're just filling out a schedule for a toddler's classroom. No, that's a lie from the enemy. You're a, part, you're a part of the whole. It's like Philip and Stephen thinking they're not making, you know what, we're just rolling out dough or whatever they were doing. doesn't make any impact. No, it says as a direct result of that, the, God's message continued to spread. The disciples were multiplied and many priests came into the kingdom of God. You're making impact. It'll change the way that you go, go about serving if you know, man, this matters. I'm just handing bulletins. Nope. No, you're not. You're advancing the kingdom of God. You're contributing to the whole. I'm just opening the door. I'm just driving the shuttle. No, nope. you're advancing the kingdom of God. You're advancing the kingdom. You're serving in God's house. You're honoring him. It's worship. It's worship to him. So the first thing is a key to the church being great is people serving. People serving is a key to the church being great. The second, second thing I want to talk about, we'll just talk about it for a couple minutes and then we'll pray. The key to the church being great is people serving, but it's also the key to people being great. For you to be great, you need to have the attitude of a servant. We won't take time to read through it, but if we continue to read the rest of of chapter six into chapter seven, into chapter eight, essentially three whole chapters of the book of Acts that are dedicated to tell us the story of a few of these guys that started in the food ministry. Stephen ends up, starts serving in the food ministry, ends up getting to preach the gospel to the high council, preaches the gospel to them. He ends up being the first martyr in the church, gives his lifetime, look, gets to look up and see Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. Amazing. Philip ends up becoming an evangelist, travels to Samaria, preaches the gospel, tells people about the baptism of the Holy Spirit, has signs and wonders. He gets to minister to this Ethiopian eunuch who's riding along in a carriage. Just this amazing encounter leads him to the Lord. He says, hey, why don't I get baptized? They pull over on the side of the road. Philip baptizes this guy. And when he comes up out of the water, Philip vanishes. God supernaturally moves him from that place because he needed it somewhere. I mean, this is an amazing experience. Just materializes somewhere else in the country because God had another assignment for him. Uh, amazing things. Where did this all begin? It began by them being willing to serve in a food ministry. Will, some, will someone serve these widows food? I mean, we, we don't have time for it. This is getting too complex. We need to simplify. We need some people over this. Yeah, I'll do it. 
Sure, I'd be glad to do it. They begin to serve in that capacity and it set them up for the greatness that God had. This, this is so important because God had great things for Philip. God had great things for Stephen. The rest of those men, I'm sure as well. God has great things for you. God has great things for this church. God has great things for each person in this church. The Bible says he prepared good works in advance for you to do. That means if 2,000 years ago, God's dreaming up 2,000 years ahead of time or however far back it was, that was a big plan. So he's been planning for you for a long time. And it wasn't just like, eh, I want them to rent an apartment and have a little vehicle, have a couple nice, no, he's got big, great things in store for you. But you'll never step into the big things unless you first step into the small things. You've got to be willing to step into the small if you ever want to experience the big. We can see it in these people's lives. If you were here last week, I loved hearing the testimonies we got to hear last Sunday. Steve, he's talking about this amazing ministry. God's using him to impact people and change lives and, and change families and impact our state. Amazing things. But last week he said, you know, it probably all started one Sunday when I heard them say we need help in the nursery, and my wife elbowed me and said, we should do that. And I said, no, and they had an argument. They ended up serving in the nursery. He said, that's where it all started. They started, they started someplace small. If he would have said no to that and been successful in saying no to that, then who knows if he would have never done the great things if he would have refused to do the small things. He had, he had Kayla and Malin up here. Sharon, they're, they're up there from our own church family, leading kids, parenting these kids in a home doing awesome things for the kingdom of God. They shared their testimony. They said, we felt like God wanted to do something more for us. We didn't know what it was, so we started serving. We got involved in the kids' ministry. She said last, last Sunday, I felt like God had more, more for me in my life than to be a puppeteer, but that's what they asked me to do, so that's what I did. So God had something great for them, but the way he got them to something great was by starting someplace small. If you say no to the small, just know that you're also saying no to the great. You'll never experience the big if you refuse the small. That's the way things work in the kingdom of God. And we could go all through the Bible and look at example after example. You know, uh, Elisha, this great man of God, one of the great prophets of the Old Testament, that one time he was, he was referred to just as the guy that used to wash Elijah's hands. That's how he was referred to. Not great man of God, powerful prophet, anointed one. He wasn't referred to as any of those things. Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, they were, was asking one day, isn't there like a prophet around? Isn't there a prophet of God that we can like bounce some ideas off of? And someone said, ah, there's Elisha. He used to like help clean Elijah's hands. I don't know. We could ask him. But when he was washing Elijah's hands, do you think that's all God had for him? God saw him as a prophet in training. Man, he's, he's setting, he's positioning himself up for something huge by embracing something small and doing it as unto the Lord. Do you think he's rolling his eyes as he's tipping over the pitcher of water? This is ridiculous. Unto the Lord. Glad to serve. Glad, is, is that enough water? Is the right temperature? You just say when. You want to scrub those bubbles off now? You, what, do you, what do you need? Doing it as unto the Lord. Knowing, God, whatever you have for me, I'm going to embrace the small so I can qualify myself for, for the big. You know, a lot of times when we're out running around as a family, running to the stores, ordering dinner, stopping and picking it up, what will often happen is I'll just kind of run in real quick instead of unloading all of our kids and just kind of marching our whole parade into the, the store. I'll just say, you know, I'll just run in real quick. And when that happens, Beth and the girls are in the, the car. More often than not, when I get back to the car, my youngest daughter has left her seat in the back, crawled her way up to my seat, and it's playing around with the steering wheel, just messing around, having a good time, doing whatever. And I've got to kick her out so I can get back in the car. When she's sitting there and she's, you know, cranking the steering wheel one way or the other, you know she's very careless when she does that. But one time I was walking out and she had that thing aimed right at me. She had the car aimed at me. One time, one time she had the vehicle pointed directly at the building that I was in. Could have destroyed the whole place. She was turning that wheel all over, just careless. But it didn't matter. Because, because the vehicle was in park. And no amount of steering and cranking the wheel one way or the other, it didn't have any influence on where that vehicle was going as long as it was stopped. 
But once it starts moving, even, even moving slow, even moving a little bit now, the steering comes into play and it has huge ramifications where, where it's pointed. A lot of times people will say, Lord, I just want you to use me. God, I know you've got great plans for me. God, I know I, I, you wanna use me to make impact. God, I wanna do something special for your kingdom. Lead me and guide me. Show me what you want me to do. Unfold the plans that you have for my life. Give me strategies to take the nations and they pray all these good prayers, but it doesn't really matter how much God is steering as long as your life is in part. If you'll just start doing something, start serving somewhere, start get, getting moving, even in a small capacity, now God's got something to work with now, if he's directing you, you'll at least know it because your life has some momentum to move. Listen to what it says in James chapter four, verse 10. It says, humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord. Make yourself a servant. Make yourself look, nothing too small. I'm humble, God, anything you want me to do. I'll wash feet, I'll scrub tables, I'll, I'll do whatever you want me to do. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. He will lift you up. It's the attitude of a servant that puts you on the move in the kingdom of God. Just beginning to serve. God says, I'll, I'll personally put my hand on you. I'll begin to move you. I'll get you to that spot. Start small and I'll, I'll take over from there. God seems to have a strange kind of joy in taking things that are small and turning them into things that are big. It just seems to delight him in some way, just part of his makeup. Again, we could look all through the Bible and see case after case with, with the nation of Israel. I didn't choose you because you were the greatest. I didn't choose you because you were the most numerous. You were small and insignificant. I want to take you and make you great. Zechariah 4.10. Despise not the day of small beginnings. Why? The Lord rejoices. He, he just loves seeing the word. Be, I just love taking something small, getting it started and turning it into something, to something great. It's the same thing in our lives. He wants you to be willing to start small, but the enemy will keep you waiting for, now I know God's got something great. I want to do something big. I want to do something impactful. And he'll keep you on the sideline all your life, waiting for that great big stage to step out onto when God wants you to start serving in some small, small way. You'll never step into the big if you refuse to step into the small. People getting involved in serving is how the church becomes great. It's also how you become great. If you're not serving, we need to serve. We need you to serve. If you're not serving, you need to serve. If you are serving, know that you are having incredible impact. You are having, you're advancing the kingdom of God. Well, that's this week's message. Thanks for joining us. To stay connected with us throughout the week, make sure you follow us on Instagram and Facebook. You can also watch previous week's services on our YouTube page.